0: Everybody, what's up? Welcome to Bible Prophecy Talk. My name is Chris. It's good to be back with you again today. All right. So I thought I would do a quick notes show, just talk a little bit about current events and some thoughts about random things. I will talk about some Bible prophecy, Gog Magog stuff here in a bit and some other things. But um, first, I wanted to mention a few show notes. The Bible Prophecy Archive has been doing well. You can go to BibleProphecyArchive.com. This is where uh, we've put together articles and and videos and and all kinds of audio and basically anything. It's curated Bible prophecy stuff, 18 gigabytes of stuff. And that's after we've kind of sized it appropriately. So it's a lot of information. It's basically everything you need to know. Library about Bible prophecy. It was developed in case something happens to the internet or whatever, you would have a copy that you could uh, uh, share with people or download to other things or whatever. So you can go to BibleProphecyArchive.com. I've also put additional option on there now where you can just send me an email and I will send you a free USB drive. Um, No matter where you are in the world, just send me an email and I will send you out a, a 30, whatever it is, 32 gigabyte USB drive. It's about 18 gigabytes of information. So yeah, you can send that email to Archive at ProtonMail.com. But please do try to download the file first. But if you have any trouble or you know, don't have good internet or whatever the situation is where you can't download it very easily, please reach out. I will send you a USB drive for free. That again is BibleProphecyArchive at ProtonMail.com. And let me know where to send it. Also, I do know I am very late with the next installment of the Bible Prophecy Timeline series, the one about the end times apostasy. I have it all written, basically, except for the conclusion. I you know, have mapped out, you know, what the end times apostasy is, when it takes place, a lot of details about it. It's just once I get into the tricky theological questions, you know, can a Christian commit this end times apostasy, or for that matter can a Christian commit apostasy? And what does that look like? And under what circumstances does it happen? And a lot of tricky theological questions. I will say that, um, in my opinion, anybody that says that they know it one way or the other probably isn't looking at all the scriptures that pertain to that question, because there are more than you would think. And um, so I do think that I'm probably just going to release it with that question open. Uh, though I will give the data points and the questions that I'm questioning. But uh, but I do think that's probably the only way I'm ever going to get it out there. So uh, look for that soon. Not going to put a time on it, but soon. All right. So let's just jump into current events. And basically that just means Russia at this point. So I won't get into the play-by-plays of, of anything going on or, or where I think it's necessarily going. I'll say two things about it. The first is that It has made me really understand that propaganda is just always going to work. Like It doesn't even have to be good, and it's a little bit of a a black pill, I guess you'd say, but it, it just doesn't bode well for humanity to have a basically one one world media, which is basically what it is, which we also saw with COVID and that lockstep nature of media all around the world. And any media that didn't do that kind of got flushed out in the system. Anybody that was not in lockstep with that media got singled out and dealt with as whatever misinformation taken off the internet, basically. So it was already bad, but now it's like this monolith, one voice of media. And you take that into account with the fact that my Unproven, unstudied theory that uh, 50% of the population will always believe propaganda. And it doesn't really even matter what it is. It's just a personality type. I've said it a million times, but it's really disheartening, you know, with the Ukraine thing. And I, it was a little bit like the vaccine thing for me when, um, you know, early on the vaccine, I, I just couldn't believe anybody. I, I honestly didn't believe a lot of people would take the vaccine because it seemed so transparently a bad idea. And yet, you know, getting out of my bubble and looking around, and it's like, what? 80% of the world loves this thing, and what is, you know, cl- climbing over each other to get it? It's like, I was surprised by it. Sa- and the same thing is true with the Russia propaganda. Just the people that I wouldn't even think would be caught up by this or just caught up by it. And it's difficult this time because now, Fox News is basically saying the same thing as CNN. And uh, so that's really confusing those people that have a predisposition to believe authority anyway. So, yeah. So first thing I would say is that propaganda is just never going to go away. And it doesn't bode well for our future because I don't think that we can have anything near a functional future where non-evil things can happen with a global media like that in conjunction with half the population of the world that can't not believe it okay the other thing though about russia is this i think and take this with a huge grain of salt because i think the one thing i know for sure is that i don't know enough about the real reasons anybody is doing any of this you know the kind of stuff that vladimir putin sees on his desk or uh, is just probably so far away from anything I even know about, um, that it's not a factor in my thing. But I can look at it very broadly and I can tell you what the outcome of this situation is, regardless of if this becomes a minor thing that we stop talking about in a month because it's a news cycle and it got wrapped up because they had a peace agreement, Putin got ousted or whatever, and uh, or something like that, or Russia teams up with China in a complete military situation. They go on a conquering spree and World War III breaks out. Nuclear weapons happen. That's like option B, the extreme version of B. I think there's probably a less extreme version of B where Russia teams up with China uh, economically and they begin to grow as a powerhouse and a new sort of power block. And that's a new threat, Oceania or what have you, that we are always at war with, at least in a Cold War. Uh, And then different things can get furthered in the globalist agenda through that as well. I think either way, the outcome of this is more globalism and there's different ways I think it can come about. So one way I heard from the Propaganda Report, which is an excellent podcast, they uh, pointed out, I think uh, Brad had listened to some CFR meeting in which they were talking about the situation and were hypothesizing about the outcome in which Putin gets ousted, which I think is a really, really likely scenario. Either that or war, it's my guess, is that Putin either gets ousted or there's a war. I don't see there being a kind of peace agreement kind of situation happening. It's not my uh, guess. I think that either way, he has to get ousted for any of this to make sense if the easy non-war version happens. But if that happens, then what will happen, according to the CFR, I think they were sort of hypothesizing, they would so sign some kind of new global agreement, to let this never happen again, and make sure Russia is basically on board with a global agenda from there on out. It's no, no longer is Russia an outsider, whether, whether it was or not, or Russia's playing its role for uh, the, the globalism stuff. I don't know, really. Uh, but I'll say that either way, that will be the outcome of that. New rules on paper about globalism in which Russia is now included in it and everybody's a big, happy globalist family on paper. And I don't think it would be a minor agreement. I think it would be something big on the order of like a NATO. Some kind of new structure on paper would be proposed and built uh, as a result of that. The other option is the World War III option, and that is even better from the globalist perspective because war is giant leaps for globalism, whereas conflicts and these kinds of things are baby steps. Think of World War I. Millions die. What is the solution of the world? Hey, how about the League of Nations? Something completely new could only fly if after that war where everybody was just shell shocked by the idea that millions of their sons had died. And nothing like that should ever be allowed to happen. And I think that they were noble, at least the people that got suckered into it were. Um, then World War II happened, and so all that kind of went to waste. We are like, oh, well, that didn't work. So, But what did they do? They ended that with the United Nations, just codified it even more. And the United Nations has been growing ever since. But it still doesn't have the teeth, the army, the globalist army army that it needs, that the, the legitimacy to send globalist army troops places. And that's the real next step that I think needs to happen. And that's going to require something bigger, I think. So and maybe not. Maybe it can happen with, with a smaller thing. But, but war serves a lot of agendas, not just that one. It's a lot of things get done with war. Dissenters, as I mentioned, are uh, happily dealt with and killed and reeducated when wars happen. So that could be an outcome. Maybe it's my normalcy bias talking, but I don't know. I, I could see it just fading away too. I don't know. I don't see how it could. I don't see how anybody could. Part of it is that the, the level of vitriol they, they are now spewing, they've turned the entire eye of Sauron that was, that like all this money and stuff was Towards vaccine stuff, you know, get a vaccine. The Eye of Sauron said to everybody with all its power, and then that just stopped. And the Eye looked at Putin and it said, "Putin, bad." And Zelensky, hero for the same the same level, is now pointed at that, and that just can't. That's going to affect the people in Russia most of all. I think that that's why I say ouster of Putin is likely because the people in Russia. Um, I don't know how much they believe what they're hearing or whatever, but, um, uh, you know, I just don't see many options. I see war or ouster. I don't see anything else, but as I say, I, I kind of would just like it to kind of fade away and, you know, maybe it will. I want to talk briefly about the Gog Magog war in Ezekiel 38 and 39 and Revelation twenty-seven through 10, because Uh, obviously Russia is in the news and there is a real strong belief in American Christianity in the last, oh, I'd say 50 years now. Yeah, I'd say 40, 50, whenever Hal Lindsey came out with the late great planet Earth, um, that Russia has anything to do with the gog Magog War. And Hal Lindsey got the idea from this 18th century apocalyptic teacher that had his own reasons for believing that Russia was uh evil at that time, but that's a whole nother story. But as far as I can tell, that's it. I mean, there's nobody in Christian history that ever thought that Russia had a single thing to do with this. The arguments that Hal Lindsey makes in his book are nonsensical, and he doesn't even try to deal with them. The concept of Meshach and Tubal being the, the, the city Moscow and Tobolsk in Russia, he doesn't even try to make an argument for it. He literally just says, they sound like, eh, eh, notice that? And, um, It just doesn't make sense, especially when you look at the actual evidence, the things that you can know. What is the, what do we know from scripture and history about where Meshach and Tubal are? Are they real places? Unequivocally, yes. You've got some uh, Akkadian kings and Persian kings and and, uh, you know, way back to the dawn of civilization talking about where Meshach and Tubal is. And it's fitting that they're talking that it goes back that far because these are the sons of Japheth, right? And they all settled in Eastern Turkey. Scripturally, you can, you can find that out. Um, even Josephus, who some people point to and say, oh, G- Josephus said they're the Scythians. Well, maybe, but Josephus says that they started in Eastern Turkey because everyone knows that Meshach and Tubal started in, e- in Eastern Turkey and, uh, uh, and, and, and that's just not a thing that you can debate. So to, to be, to say, oh, I think they're in Moscow because Mishak sounds like Moscow a little bit, not even an etymological connection there, but anyway, I'm off the track. So anyway, I have a couple of points that I had never thought about with Gog Magog that I wanted to mention here in the podcast, but I don't see any way around Prefacing what I believe, and there's probably new people here that haven't heard it. I would say that uh, there is—I'll put in the show notes the all the parts together from a multi-week study I did on the Gogmagog War, where I went through everything with a fine-tooth comb. I think it's one of the more complete studies on the Gogmagog War out there. Uh, it'll be the first link in the podcast notes. If you just scroll up your phone, you should be able to see it in your podcatcher. Uh, if not, you can just go to YouTube, type in Gog Magog, Chris White, Bible prophecy talk, all that stuff to get to the Gog Magog thing. I think it's a little shadow band, uh, as I can't seem to find it without doing all that stuff. But anyway, I think the Gog Magog war takes place. Well, let me read the first point to preface this in a thing I've been writing, For the magazine, there. It's called 10 Arguments that the Gog Magog War Will Not Take Place During Our Lifetime. And argument one is a paragraph and a number of bullet points, so bear with me. In Revelation 20, 7 through 10, a war that the Apostle John calls Gog and Magog takes place, quote, after the thousand years are completed. In context, this means it takes place after the millennium of peace ends when Satan will be released from his prison for a short time, Revelation 20, 1 through 3, and 20, verse 7, to deceive the nations to go to war against God in Jerusalem, which has been at peace for a thousand years before this. This war in Revelation 27 through 10 and the war in Ezekiel 38 and 39 are very similar. For example, both take place after a period of peace. Revelation 27, Ezekiel 38, 8, Ezekiel 38, 11 through 12, Ezekiel 38:14. Both armies are from the same geographical locations representing all four compass points. In Ezekiel 38, 1-6, it has Turkey from the north, Persia from the east, Ethiopia from the south, and Libya from the west. In the Revelation passage, it says that the nations are from the four corners of the earth, which is a phrase used in Isaiah 11, 10 through 12, to refer to the exact same geographical locations mentioned by Ezekiel. So if you take that Isaiah passage, Isaiah 11, 10 through 12, where it says the four corners of the earth and it lists a bunch of nations, if you plot on a map where all those nations are that Isaiah mentioned that he calls the four corners of the earth, And then you plot out the nations in Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll be like, hey, these are the exact same places geographically. So you have biblical uh, reasons to say, yeah, John was just giving a summary in Revelation 20 of the same things mentioned in Ezekiel. But moving on, both passages include mortal armies gathered to march on Jerusalem, but are destroyed by God himself. Revelation 20 verse 9 and Ezekiel 38, 10 through 23. Both armies are consumed by fire from heaven. Revelation 29, Ezekiel 38, 22, and 39, 6. Both armies are massive in number. Revelation 38, 8, it talks about them being from the sands of the sea. And Ezekiel 38, 4 through 6, 38, 9, 38, 15, 39, 11 through 17 make all kinds of mentions about the huge numbers of armies. It talks about burying their weapons and their bodies for all this whole time because there's so many of them, etc. And then finally, both wars are directly followed by an unprecedented time of peace. Revelation 21, 1 through 2, Ezekiel 39, 7, 39, 21 through 24. If this event in Revelation 20 is simply a summary of Ezekiel 38 and 39, which was the conclusion of the only two peer-reviewed papers on the subject of the timing of the gog magog War, and here I footnote uh, both J. Paul Tanner's paper and Ralph H. Alexander's paper, that were in which they both concluded that the Gog-Megag War must be taking place at the end of the millennium. They also both interestingly concluded that Armageddon might be a typological prefiguration, that is to say, a near fulfillment of the Gog-Megag War, but the far and completest, f- most complete fulfillment of the gog War must be at the end of the millennium. And I've been thinking that maybe I would be interested in a debate on this subject uh, with somebody of some standing, I guess, that believes particularly that the Gog Magog war occurs um, before the 70th week begins, and ideally that they believe that something has to do with Russia as well. That would be the the picture of the person I'd like to debate because I think that's where most American pastors are. Uh, again, because of how Lindsey, and some something needs to be done about that, especially if it becomes important. If this, if Satan plans on using some kind of false thing about this to further his agenda, then, um, then yes, yeah, some, something needs to be on the record about that. Anyway, so I've had some opportunities to think through some additional things about Gog Magog, and I'll mention them here. The first one is about the Josephus thing and the Scythians. This was brought up as another argument against the uh, millennium thing and the, or rather the Russia thing that, that Josephus said that I believe it's Magog was the progenitor of the Scythians. That's all Josephus says. The the Greeks called them the Scythians. He talks about where Magog migrated. He starts in Eastern Turkey and he ends basically Southern black Sea. So he didn't even go that far, but where he goes is technically Russia. And since, but, and so that's one thing, but, but according to Josephus, by the way, and if he is the Scythians, and that's a big if, because Josephus is wrong about that kind of stuff frequently, and Josephus is the only person that says that Magog is the progenitor of the Scythians, and it's a little bit weird because then you've, and this is the argument that I made in the thing, which I didn't really like the argument, it was unnecessary and I think wrong, and if I had to do it over again, I would just cut it, but I would say, I was, I would say that, well, even then, the Scythians, according to all history, they migrated from like eastern Russia and then push their way West to finally get to that kind of area, that Western area. But I made a big deal about that in there, but I really wouldn't do it again. But my main point that I want to get to here is that Josephus, yes, says that they were Scythians, but he says that they start uh, in Eastern Turkey, where everybody knows that j sons dwelt, including Josephus. And my point was that a lot of people that hold the Scythians are Russia or my connection to Russia. And therefore it's Russia idea is that what they think is that the Bible is telling them these weird names and they're weird names because to bring up Genesis 10 and the table of nations, you know, Noah and Shem, Ham and Japheth, all of a sudden, and Ezekiel, like Jerusalem's falling whatever thousands of years later. And he's bringing up these table of nations to talk about this. Why do that? And the reason to do that is so that you know where he's talking about without question. And the way you would know where he's talking about without question is because those places don't change. J-Path's son settled in eastern Turkey, period, end of story. And that's, that's how you can know whether you're talking about the Millennium, which, by the way, all those names... Uh, Meshach and Tubal and and Sheba and Dedan and all these things that are mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39, they're also mentioned in passages about the millennium. So I actually think that those place names really will exist in the millennium based on the frequency of when the millennium is talked about. It mentions the same names that appear out of nowhere in the Gog Magog passages. But I digress. I guess it's not really a digression because my point is that use Genesis 10 nations so you know where you're talking about and you don't use them to say this. Well, Magog eventually uh, migrated east, according to historians, and Josephus, well, he's the only j- historian, but then they migrated east, and uh, the bloodline that they currently hold is what it is, and we got to do some genetic studies to figure out which race currently inhabits, the, who, who best represents Sheba these days, racially speaking, you know? Also, we need to take into account, like, everything that we can find about migration pa- patterns of Tubal. Where did Tubal or Gomer end up? Did they go to Germany? You know, maybe we need to do a, a, a you know what I'm saying, that's not nonsense. That's a, that's a terribly convoluted way to find out the truth of scripture. When, if you just say the reason those nations existed was to find out where they began, not where they ended up. The reason you say Magog is so that everybody knows you're talking about Eastern Turkey. The reason that you say Sheba and Dedan is that you can know everybody's talking about Saudi Arabia or Persia, etc. So you don't, you don't, that's the that's my new thing that I thought about that I really would have liked to put that in the video, but instead I made this convoluted argument about the migration patterns of the Scythians, which wasn't really necessary. Another new argument that I thought about this week that I wish I would have added to that series was somebody had asked me, they said, well, if Revelation 20, 7 through 10 is when the Gog Magog War takes place, that is after the millennium, then how do you explain the burying of the bodies for seven months and the burning of the weapons for seven years in the eternal kingdom, because the eternal kingdom, according to them, does not need to bury bodies or to burn weapons or any of that stuff because it's the eternal kingdom. And so the way I normally answer that is first to say, well, most of what you're objecting to there is just a belief that you have about the eternal kingdom, because we don't know very much about it. Uh, But I think what you're what they what they're saying in that kind of argument is that isn't the eternal kingdom like us just floating around with harps and stuff? I mean, there's no need for fires and warmth and cooking or anything like that and burying bodies. No, thank you. We've got these harps going on. That's it's a it's just a pure belief about the eternal kingdom which, you know, has some merit certainly. I mean, you know, wiping tears from the eyes, there's lots of talk about how there's no need for the sun in the new Jerusalem because the glory of the Lord is there and all these kind of things make you think about well, there's no sun, but it doesn't say there's no sun. It says there's no need for sun in the new Jerusalem because the glory of the Lord is giving its light. That's talking about the new Jerusalem, which is, by the way, a huge, like mountain-like structure, kind of ziggurat-ish, pyramid-ish, not cubish, but a huge, basically a Sinai kind of thing. It's a new Sinai, which I think is why the glory of the Lord is on top of it, according to Janet Willis in her book, What on Heaven Will, What on Earth Will Heaven Be Like, which is a fantastic book. Um, which goes into the millennium a lot and the eternal kingdom and some other things there just, just to show that it's, it's kind of like a real world. And I think I could go into that and maybe I will in just a minute, but my, that's my first argument is that the eternal kingdom seems from the little that we do know about it, it seems like it might have actual real people on it. I mean, we're going to have real flesh and body. Uh, I mean, our bodies are going to be uh, different, but we're going to be there. And I think that the eternal kingdom is going to be like a home base as opposed to a place that we go. Um, but there is this verse in Revelation 21, 24 through 27, which also seems to suggest that there's going to be mortals there, just like there was in the millennium too. It says, um, By its, the new Jerusalem's light, will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever into it enter it, nor anyone who does not who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So you could take that different ways, but it certainly sounds like that millennial language where there's still gifts and things being done by the nations and the kings in the world. And I would submit that there are all these passages talking about what our purpose is for eternity. Eternity is a long time. And I I think, you know, 500,000 years ago, years from now, rather, we're going to be doing stuff. I mean, we it could be that all the planets are going to be populated by things. And we're like what we consider the angels are now. We're we're the immortals. You know, I don't know. I'm getting off the subject there, but there's a lot more to this story I think you can glean from the little bit that we do have. But I also make the point that we do not know how much time transpires from the beginning, or rather the end of the millennium, and the beginning of the eternal kingdom. So what happens at the end of the millennium? The thousand years are completed, and what happens? The millennium just now ended. What happens? Well, Satan is released from his prison for a short time. He goes out to deceive the nations to war against God in Jerusalem. They are eventually burned with fire. How long does that take place? I mean, The eternal kingdom obviously didn't start the minute that the thousand years ended, because You've got Satan released at the end of the millennium. So it could be years. It could be decades. It could be hundreds of years. We just don't know how long that system takes. And so you would say, well, okay then. But by the time that Satan is finally defeated by God in this new war in Revelation 27 through 10, after that war, then the eternal kingdom surely must immediately start after that. Well, I mean, okay, maybe, but even my point before was, well, even if it did you still are going to have a world there and fires needed for warmth. And it's important that the the burying of the bodies is explicitly to cleanse the land because you can't, because bones are unclean. It makes the land unclean, but it's primarily a thing that God does for his glory. That whole thing is to to give God glory and that his people literally cannot be, uh, uh, um, hurt that's the point of this whole passage in fact that starts in ezekiel 33 and ends in 39 it's showing pictures of the millennium and you know the messiah ruling there forever and how they're not going to be uh like they were because this whole vision starts because jerusalem gets falls. Jerusalem falls. The guy comes and tells Ezekiel about it. Immediately, Ezekiel has these six night visions, which all include a millennial sort of vision, which basically glorifies God, because in the future, it won't be like this. In the future, they won't have to worry about Jerusalem falling anymore. And that's what a part of the dead armies are. And that's why they bring glory to God, their dead bodies do. So even if it was just a memorial in that sense in the eternal kingdom, there's no reason not to bury the bodies. But the the new thing that I said to this uh, person was that whether or not you believe that it's right to have dead bodies in the in the eternal kingdom either way you get them unless you're going to tell me that revelation 20 7 through 10 isn't even a real thing that happens because either way cuz if you if you approach this the way you approach everything else as a standard literal hermeneutic you've got sands of the sea, dead bodies all over the place at the end of the millennium, just before the eternal kingdom. So your only option is to say, well, I guess God just immediately cleans those bodies up, you know, because you've got the same problem actually in Revelation 19 after Armageddon. I mean, we're not, I mean, it's a whole lot of bodies there that are killed. I actually think they march on Jerusalem too, which is a totally different story. Uh, But the point is that, you've got all these bodies there just before the millennium, but nobody has a problem burying them then, I guess, or maybe God supernaturally cleans them up too. He might do it there. But my point is that to those people who say, ah, what's this burying bodies in the eternal kingdom? We're not going to have that. Well, you're going to have bodies. I don't know what you, how you're going to clean them up. It may be people, it may be God, but the bodies are going to need to be cleaned up just at, just at the onset of the eternal kingdom. Unless to my other point, the eternal kingdom doesn't start until after that uh, cleansing of the land takes place. Another thing, which really isn't an argument, but it's just something I've been thinking about since everybody's been talking about Gog Magog War these past uh, few weeks or whatever, is that even if I believed that Russia was somehow involved in the Gog Magog War and that the Gog Magog War was supposed to take place before the 70th week, um, I would say, well, this still doesn't look a lot like it, right? You know, you've got, isn't, isn't uh, Russia, in that view, supposed to team up with Iran and Ethiopia and Libya? That's, just, that's a weird match, uh, right? And I think that it's a weird match pretty much. I think this is, I make this point in that thing that, that those countries are weird. And it's weirder because of who they don't include. They don't include Egypt and Saudi Arabia and the Palestinians and Jordan. They don't include anybody that's in greater Israel. And the reason is, and again, you can plot this out on a map, from the Nile to, what is it, to the Nile to the uh, Euphrates River is the land that God gave to Abraham. It's this huge block of land in the Middle East, which includes Saudi Arabia and Jordan and all of Egypt up into the Nile anyway. And you don't hear any of those guys in Gog Magog because they are part of greater Israel. They, they are Israel during Gog Magog. So you look at it in a map of Sheba and Dedan and uh, uh, the the, the Japhatian co- cor- cohort in the north and, and uh, Libya and Ethiopia. And they're just on the borders of greater Israel. That's why they're there. But anyway, to the modern point, uh, where are those guys? We don't see Russia about to attack Israel with Libya. I mean, and you know, it goes to the point of the level of scripture twisting. I don't even think it's a scripture twisting. They're not sitting down to do a Bible study on this. They're just throwing it out there. Hey, this is the Bible talked about Gog Magog. Hey guys, we're in the end times. It, this is it, guys. This is it. Gog Magog's happening. And they're not even trying. They're not even trying. And again, it's sad because these aren't false teachers. These are these are godly men and women who in America, we just have a tradition of Bible prophecy that is very easy. It doesn't take any learning. It takes copy and pasting. And I'm getting off on my high horse again, so I better zip it. Before I leave today, I wanted to talk about a subject that's been on my notes forever and ever, but it just does not really apply to anything. It is the subject of aphantasia. So I have aphantasia, which literally means no imagination. And What it means is that I have no inner sight and no inner dialogue. And this is uh, a lot of people I should warn you. It's almost impossible to even know that you have this unless somebody that has it is explaining it to you and has fully vetted this with people that have it. Like my wife who has the complete opposite. She's hyper Fantasia. So because what I've been doing my whole life and the reason nobody ever knows that anybody has it is because we all just sort of agree on these words that aren't, that don't mean the same thing to any of us. For example, when I, when people think of thinking and memory, they don't mean what I think of when I think of thinking and memory. And because when people think of memory, they picture faces and they have an actual kind of picture. They can't see it, but they can see it. You know, the visual part of their brain is lighting up if you had an MRI or whatever, And for me, that visual part of my brain is not lighting up. It's black and it's always going to be black in there. Uh, A good way to explain this is I've always thought on TV and movies when people talk about, you know, uh, writing crime scene sketches, I always thought that was just completely impossible. How are you going to remember what somebody looks like good enough to describe it to somebody? It seemed like a, a nonsense thing. And whenever somebody said in school, like picture, picture yourself on this, whatever, you know, I could do that in this sense, but I didn't really understand that people were actually picturing things. And the same thing goes with inner dialogue. I don't have a audio, audio aspect to my thinking in my head. I think in language, but I, I don't hear anything. It's not something that I do. I, I my wife actually hears music when she thinks of a song, she can like, she, I, she always put her fingers over her ears. I was like, I always, I know now she was like actually listening to something. I'm like, what? But I mention it because I think a lot of people, my wife said the same thing. She had heard about aphantasia before me. And she said that if I had not known you had aphantasia, I would have thought they were like NPCs. She didn't use the word NPC. She doesn't know the term NPC, but I don't think, but I have people heard since people say that online, that they just can't believe that it exists. Aphantasia by the numbers are supposed to only be 2% of the population, but my Uh, my thinking is that it's much, much higher. It's just people don't know it uh, very much because they say, oh, people can't picture things in your head. And I would say before that, well, I picture things in my head, you know, I can do it in such a way, um, that, and I should talk about that real quick because after this is the, the progression of finding out you have aphantasia, you totally freak out for like a week and a half. And you think, wow, I cannot believe all these people have this like magical ability that I don't have, and you feel sorry for yourself for about a week and a half. And then you realize that it all comes to the same thing because the reason why nobody has noticed it and nobody like ever finds it out naturally without being told about it basically is because it all works out. We're making the same connections, but in different parts of our brain. So my wife was really concerned about me. She's like, how do you even know who I like? How do you even remember who I am when I come back? I mean, like, how do you even, and that blew me away to that question. I was like, what do you mean? Of course, I'm going to, you know what you look like, but that's a tough question. It's like, how do I know what she looks like? And, um, I mean, I got a, what I call a picture. I think of it like the matrix code, you know, uh, if you remember cipher and that, and he's like, I don't see code anymore. I see blonde brunette redhead. And I was, I think of it like that. I kind of have a part of my brain that I've created a facsimile of images. And you're probably thinking, oh, it's like a, a green picture of a person's head, but it's not, it's like, it's just impossible to explain. But I, but that part of my brain is doing the job, uh, well enough, but it does get a little bit tricky when you talk about the crime scene photos. That's about as hard, that's about the most difficult thing I can think of that things that you don't get. Uh, I will say, and the reason I'm bringing this up is because I do think it helps explain something about my personality. The only real change as far as I've, a real thing that it means to a person with a, aphantasia is that they tend to be people who are a little bit, uh, oh, I don't know, they, they get over things really quickly and forget people really quickly. I have all my life, uh, just left people that I love dearly and just never talked to them again. And I never thought about it much. And I bet that, and I know that's not normal. And it, what people do say is that a lot of people have a Fantasia. They don't grieve as much. They don't have nearly as much like PTSD because they don't relive those things in their, in a visual way. And so like, I could see something totally disgusting and and just whatever, and I might think about it or whatever, in the way that I think about it, but it's not going to plague me like it will somebody else. So basically in a situation where like something really disgusting has to be done, you probably need to send me because it won't affect me in the long run, as much as it might affect somebody who could remember it visually. Um, but it does make me a bit of a, what's the, Socio, what's the one where you don't seem to have a whole lot of emotions. I've never been an emotionally up or down person. My wife says, well, Hey, you can't use that as your excuse. Cause I'm the same way. And I got hyper Fantasia. What does that make me? <laughs> but I do think it's a, it's affected my relationships uh, with other people in the past, because I do sort of like, Oh, you know, I don't think of it the same way. one, one person said they found out that they had it when uh, they weren't grieving, their mother in the same way that other people do. And the reason that's important is because a lot of people, when this is why I say memory actually is a completely different concept is for me, memories are like their thoughts. I, I can't even explain what I think it, this is where it gets tricky. Cause what I say, when I say thought and memory is what most people think that is all visual. Like when somebody says memory, this is the crazy thing to me that they're actually talking about a picture in their head. When they say faded memory, they actually mean that the picture in their head is fading a little bit and they can't look at it as good, which is just insane to me. But on to my point, they literally have a picture of like, let's say their mom or somebody like that. They're they're dwelling on and looking on and it becomes more, I suppose, emotional or whatever over time. Or at least that's the way that I understand it. Um, So that's an interesting uh, little thing. And I don't know. I think that, uh, you know, God has... Uh, I have this for a reason and I don't think it's a big deal, but it is something that I wanted to mention because it was in my notes. And, uh, I just think it was an important thing to say. So I guess that's it for me today. And I will talk to you all next time.